really a clarion call for uh, anybody who needs it to to do something before this is enacted because of the risk of not knowing when it's going to be enacted. It really makes the planning difficult. The other side of that coin is that it's really hard to do a lot of these large transactions overnight. Like it takes it takes time because most people who have the kind of wealth that would be required to even contemplate this have very complicated assets that can't just be transferred willy-nilly or you know uh, at the drop of a hat. It takes a lot of time and effort to make these transfers happen. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass, the one and only Rachel Sass. Rachel, how's it going? One and only. Doing pretty darn good. How are you? I'm doing well. It's been a wild day for reasons that we'll discuss here in just a second. It has. It has been, yes. It's a yeah. Monday. Monday's always got to be. A, it's a manic Monday, right? It's got to be crazy. It was a little <laughs> bit of a manic Monday. I mean, they very well could have made it a manic, like, Friday at 4.45 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they didn't do that. They decided to make it the Monday. So the timing was not lost on me. I'm sure somebody, maybe they had it like ready to go, you know, Friday night at 11.58 p.m. And somebody of the people that we're about to talk to about was like, no, 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 no. That's really bad. That's going to not look so good. We've already done a bunch of that previously. <laughs> Or at least the IRS has done a bunch of that previously. So let's not do that this time. Let's give people yeah. at least the weekend. Yeah, let's let them enjoy their weekend. They have no idea what's coming on That's Monday. Right. <laughs> not a single clue. Well, I guess we might as well just get to it, not just not just beat around the bush, so to speak, here. So what we're talking about is that this morning, the House Ways and Means Committee dropped an 881-page proposal for tax changes that is part of the Reconciliation Act that is been uh, has been much talked about and anticipated really the the plan and this is in the senate and the and the house so this is sort of on the house side who knows if there's going to be something similar on the senate side but the plan has been that each of the committees who have a part to play in putting together this reconciliation bill is supposed to submit that proposal by September 15th so they submitted this the proposal by September 13 which is today and so two days ahead of schedule, we got this uh, lovely uh, bit of proposed legislation. So maybe we should start there by saying this is just proposed legislation. There's a big difference between proposed and enacted legislation. Yes, yes. I think that's a really big uh, starting point right there. We've been hearing this is what we've been talking about in previous episodes, right, on all the tax changes, what everyone's been talking about, what everyone's been expecting this year, that is what this is. And all the hypotheticals, and this is what people want, and we're, we're still in that stage. We're completely still in that stage. Nothing is set in stone. This is just the basically the, the first draft that's going to be out the gate. And there's still a lot of negotiation um, I've seen on both sides, um, especially on the Democratic side, that doesn't sound like they've got all 50 senators on board with this current uh, proposal. And mm -hmm. so I see a lot of changes going on in the future before anything's going to be actually voted on. Yep. I think that's right. I think the negotiations obviously have been happening behind the scenes. Uh, and you knew it was happening behind the scenes because it was like total silence, absolute radio silence. There was a ton of chatter 
about proposals for changes in say March or April, and then everything went completely silent. And that was at least to me the sign that behind closed doors, they were working on this stuff and they were they were trying to hash it out. So this may be a product of the quote, trying to hash it out piece. Obviously, hopefully for anybody listening, there's really no way that we are going to be able to go through all 881 pages right now. So oh, I thought, man. I know it's a shame. I know, I know everybody's disappointed <laughs> to hear that as much as we would love to do it. But, um, you know, more discussion about the particulars in all sorts of detail uh, can be had in the future when we have an actual bill. But I thought it would be important to at least point out a couple of changes. There's not very many actually in the grand scheme of the whole 881 pages. So just a very tiny little snippet of the 881 pages of changes that really relate more to estate planning and our professional lives. So for anybody who's not in that uh, that world, we apologize, I guess, in advance, but this is somewhat self-serving because it does have to do with our profession. So so I thought maybe we'd just walk through a couple of those provisions and and just talk about it. What what it says, what it's changing, what it might mean, what it doesn't say. So what do you think? I think that's a good place to start. Yeah. All right. I think, yeah, there, there's a lot we're not going to talk about. I don't think what, like corporate tax rates, I know that's a big one. That's a big head, big headline right there. And people are already upset about that. That's that's a little bit, you know, obviously it does relate to our practice, but it's a little bit more outside the realm. So I feel like focusing first on about tax rates to wealthy individuals, since that's a lot of what we do. Yeah. And as far as on like the capital gain side of things and the income tax side of things, there's a lot that could be said there. Uh, I think we we can discuss that at another date. So more specifically, we'll focus on estate taxes and some changes to the rules that relate to trusts that also relate to estate tax and gift tax. And then by extension, the generation skipping transfer tax for anybody who remembers that that even exists. So one of the first things that jumped out at me, uh, Rachel, and I don't know if it jumped out at you too, is that apparently when they sat down to hash out this little 881 pages, they left about 10 lines worth or less for a bit to say that they are going to revert back to the pre-2018 estate tax exemption. And that would become effective in 2022. So it's not going to be retroactive to the beginning of 2021. So anybody who's made transfers under the current exemption numbers, they're fine, uh, apparently, based on the proposed language. Uh, But beginning in 2022, then that exemption number would revert back to the 2017 number or at least the pre-Trump tax cut number, which was $5 million per person. It's $5 million and then it's indexed for inflation. So I think it, it's going to be $5 million indexed for inflation beginning in 2020, uh, 2010 uh, up until 2022. Whatever that number is, I don't know what it would be. So uh, you know, we'll say roughly five and a half to $6 million, somewhere in that range is what everybody's going to have for gift tax exemption and estate tax exemption. And then also for generation skipping transfer tax exemption. For anybody unacquainted, what that means is for estate taxes, if you die and your net worth is more than this, say, $5 million number, the amount that exceeds this $5 million number is subject to estate tax. So if you had $6 million, $1 million of it would be subject to estate tax, and the estate tax is roughly a 40% tax. So you write a nice $400,000 check to the IRS, everybody's happy except for you. 
or your uh, successors um, and away you go. So that's the way the exemption works. Yeah, I think that's a really good summary of it. I, I'm not surprised by this one. I think this mm -hmm. is something like you were saying, it was going to already sunset. The current exemption levels were set to sunset in 2026. Mm -hmm. And so if Congress didn't do anything, this was what was going to happen anyway. So, you know, we've seen before with the proposals, it could have, we saw numbers floating around at a million at 3.5 million. So five and a half to six, somewhere in that range. I mean, that, that seems a lot, a lot better than what some of the other proposals we were looking at are. Um, so I think this one's completely reasonable. And the biggest thing like that you are saying is that this is not retroactive. It is going to be effective as of January 1. So which that really means that high net worth individuals, if they need to do planning now, they need to do it before the end of the year while they still have these exemption levels and while they can gift all of that away. Yep. Absolutely. And there's some other rules here we'll talk about in just a second that might kind of cut against some of that end of year planning because the effective dates are slightly different. And so it's it's important to note that these exemption number effective dates are January 1, 2022. Some of the other things we're going to talk about might be before that, and it could affect the type of planning that you could do using this extra exemption. But you're you're spot on, and that's a really good point that this is really just kind of jumping the gun on 2026. It's like doing the thing that 2026 was already going to do based on the, suns the sunset provision. So it's not actually treading enormously new ground, so to speak. I recall not too long ago hearing some people say, well, the exemption has never gone down. Therefore, it's not going to go down. And I also recall thinking, well, the exemption has never been as high as it is. So I don't think we're in the same historical epic as we were previously when the exemption was basically static for decades on end. Yeah, definitely. I, I completely agree with you there. All right. So one of the other changes that they're proposing has to do with so-called grantor trusts. And you have to kind of try to parse this out. And I apologize because this is a little bit nuanced, but uh, for anybody who will just sort of deal with this uh, explanation. And if and if it doesn't make any sense, just sort of try to believe me when I say it, that this is the way it works. So if you make a gift into a trust that is an irrevocable trust, meaning it cannot be returned to you, the trust property, absent your retention of certain authority over the trust, will not be included in your estate for estate tax purposes. However, you could hold certain other powers over the trust, not the same ones as the estate tax powers, but certain different powers over the trust. And the income tax rules say that you will be treated as owning everything that's inside that trust for income tax purposes. And therefore, you will have to pay the tax bill on behalf of the trust. And this sort of sprang out of historically the trust tax rates were lower than the individual rates. And so people were packing income inside of trusts and they were trying to, to reduce their uh, tax bill accordingly. Well, then it turned out that people realized you could flip that on its head and actually use this provision to your advantage if you're a high net worth person, because that meant you could put property into a trust. It's not going to be subject to estate tax when you die. And if you pay the tax bill on behalf of the trust via an IRS ruling, it's not an additional gift into the trust. And therefore, the assets in the trust which you want to grow as big as possible because you're not going to pay estate tax on those assets, they get to grow tax-free. You know, it's sort of akin to creating like a Roth IRA, except you're paying the tax. 
as as it goes along. But vis-a-vis the beneficiaries of the trust and say the trustee, uh, you're not going to be paying. They're they're not going to be paying the income tax for the trust, and therefore it's sort of like a Roth. You get to to grow the assets inside the trust tax rate. Okay, so that was the general rule. Uh, it still is the general rule right now. So that you know, if this proposal is enacted, this rule is going to change just a little bit. So the proposal is that. In that scenario where you have a trust that otherwise would be excluded from your estate, but under these income tax rules, you're deemed to own the assets inside the trust. When you die, you will also be deemed to own the assets inside the trust for estate tax purposes, meaning the assets in the trust will be included in your estate and you got to pay estate tax on those assets as if you still own them, even though legally you do not. That was a really good explanation. Oh, that, thank you. I, I, I give you a round of applause on thank that one you. because I just kind of explained that to my husband beforehand. I was telling him about this. I don't think I did nearly as well. I think his head was still a little bit spinning after I got done. So <laughs> I'm going to have to like get exactly word for word your script so I can kind of go over that with him and see if I can get it better. <laughs> yeah, just tell him, just listen to this episode. It'll make <laughs> a little bit of sense, maybe a little bit of sense, not a ton of sense, but a little bit. I think it's good to think about this too, and just the sense of what it just a typical, I was typical in, in quotations, typical scenario in how an individual, let's say a couple gifts money to their children in an irrevocable trust. So this year, while you've got an $11.7 million exemption, let's try and use it. So we've had a lot of clients who have gifted, let's say, $5 million or $10 million to an irrevocable trust for their children. Like you said, now that money has been gifted out of their estate, so we don't have to worry about estate tax anymore. They've used that exemption amount, but the trust is set up in a way so that still that couple, they get to pay the income taxes on it. So potentially the trust now, like you said, it, well, it, it grows tax-free. And then instead of the trust having to pay the taxes at a 37% tax rate, they are paying it at their tax rate, which could be potentially a significantly amount, a significant amount lower than 37%. So it's a great deal. And this rule really just flips it on its head where it says, nope, it doesn't matter anymore for estate tax purposes. We're just going to include this into your estate. So it takes away that extra little feature of allowing you to reap the income tax benefits and the estate tax benefits. Now you're only going to reap the estate tax benefits, not the income tax benefits. That makes any sense. That's typically the scenario we've been seeing it in. And it's it's that's harsh. This is a really harsh yeah. rule. I, I didn't see this one coming. Um, and this one I, it definitely affects um, a, a lot of individuals. Yeah, this one was floating out there, although I don't know that it was given a lot of serious press. Uh, it was it was one of the proposals out in the stratosphere. I'm a little surprised that this is the one that they picked out of the possible uh, proposals because there's some others that are not on the list that I was expecting to see on the list. But there's a there's a couple of other ways that this rule can kick in too. So we've kind of talked about like what if you die? Well, then they have some provisions that also say, ah, well, death is not enough. If the trust makes a distribution out to a beneficiary, we will pretend that that distribution is a gift. And therefore, it will either eat into your gift tax exemption if you still have some left, or it will trigger a gift tax when the trust makes this distribution out to the beneficiary. So the incentive then would be you do not make distributions out to beneficiaries, because when you do that, it's just an additional gift. 
Then on top of that, the rule says, all right, well, let's say you set up one of these trusts. You're treated as owning the assets in the trust for income tax purposes. And then you realize there's this estate tax problem. And now you want to turn off that status. And sometimes in the lingo, we, it, we say you toggle off this grantor trust status. Well, when you toggle it off or when you change that status from this type of trust where you're treated as owning everything to sort of a plain vanilla trust where you're not treated as owning everything in the trust and it's its own standalone taxpayer, that transaction also is a gift. And so you could have you could trigger a gift in multiple ways by making distributions or turning off this this particular status in the trust. And that is uh, difficult uh, because then it makes it hard to get out of this scenario in an easy way. There is, however, a provision in the proposal that says, well, we're going to have some guidance, although it's really not clear what they mean by it, but we're going to have some guidance that gives you credit for previous gifts that have been made to the trust. Okay, previous gifts that have been made to the trust. Well, this particular rule applies to trusts that are formed on or after the enactment date of this proposal, which could be someday between today and the end of the year. Or maybe, you know, it's probably not going to be into next year because it's supposed to be a Budget Reconciliation Act. But some sometime between now and the end of the year, they're going to enact this thing, if, if at all. And then any trusts that are formed on or after that date will be subject to this rule. But it's not clear if what they mean by previous gifts in the trust would include previous gifts that you made to the trust, say, before the enactment date, or if it's only after the enactment date. But regardless, I think what that means effectively is that the distribution out of the trust, if one of these trusts has been formed or you've made a contribution to the trust after the enactment date, the distribution or turning off this grant or trust status will only cause a gift on the appreciation of the assets that were originally put into the trust. And so it's that appreciation component that then would be an additional gift when the distribution is made or when uh, the trust status is toggled from grantor to non-grantor. That's what it seems to be. That's what it seems to be saying. Whether uh, that is exactly how they're going to interpret it if they ever enact this and the IRS or Treasury issues regulations, I don't know. But that's what it seems to be saying. And there are some somewhat analogous provisions in other gift tax sections of the code that have a a little mechanism like that where they kind of give you credit for having made a gift previously. Yeah, that that's really interesting. And I think too one one thing to point out, you know, when when we've got rules like this where it's not exactly clear, we're not going to get guidance right away. I remember that in 2018 after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and we were thinking uh, what's going to happen? Are our gifts going to be clawed back? Like we, we didn't know. And it, it, it took quite a while to get regulation or to, yeah, to, to get any sort of guidance. Um, they're and, still issuing it. Yeah. They're still issuing it. Like they're not even done yeah. issuing the guidance from that act. Yeah. So I think it's, that's, that's going to make this a really tricky, uh, scenario where, like you said, it's this, looks like how it's actually going to be handled, but whether or not they're really going to treat it that way, that's that's another question. Yep. So, all right, then there's one other provision that relates to these kinds of trusts. And um, let me try to set this up by way of background so that people understand the transaction that this is targeting first. So right now, it is permissible 
if I am, say, the deemed owner of one of these irrevocable trusts, for me to sell assets to that trust and to be able to do so on a tax-free basis, okay? So let's say I set up a trust for Rachel. I'm the deemed owner of the assets in that trust for income tax purposes. And then I sell a building to the trust and I get back like a promissory note from the trust. Rachel's the beneficiary. So she's really going to benefit everything that, that appreciates or any income in the trust that exceeds what's needed to pay off my note. She's going to benefit from that. And I really, in real terms, got rid of this asset. I no longer own it. And I exchanged it for a note. And under normal circumstances, if you have a sale between two parties, it's a capital gain event. But under this circumstance, what the IRS has said in the past is that if I'm deemed as if I own all the assets inside the trust already, then the transaction is really only between me and myself. And a transaction between me and myself is not a capital gain event. Okay, so this is a fairly common way for wealthy families to try to squeeze in more value into trusts than they could just do by only gifting in whatever they can gift in with their current exemption amount. Okay, so right now it's very high, $11.7 million per person you could gift into one of these trusts. And you wouldn't even need to do this sale transaction. But let's just assume you're a very, very high net worth person. You got more than $11.7 million hanging around that you want to get rid of. Uh, so you put the $11.7 million into the trust, and then you sell in assets to the trust. You take back a note. And so your assets are not in your hands are not going to grow more than whatever the note says. But the trust assets are going to grow at whatever rate the asset appreciates at. So if the asset appreciates at 8 or 9% every year, and it's paying you interest at 2% every year, 6 or 7% growth is going to accumulate inside the trust, not in your hands. So that's a normal way that you can kind of like pack in value into these trusts. Well, that transaction is going away based on this proposal, because what the proposal says is a sale transaction like that between me and a trust of which I'm the deemed owner will be a, a capital gain event. It'll be a taxable event. And so I will no longer be able to escape capital gains when I engage in that transaction because it will no longer be viewed as if it's a transaction between me and myself. Yeah. Uh, you, you hit the nail That's on the head there. It's a sea change. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 mm -hmm. it's a huge change. It's, it's, it's really huge. It's, and when you think about, especially this year, when we've seen interest rates and the AFR rates be so low, we've seen a lot of installment sale transactions like this where families have been able to do these sale transactions and then take that note for an extremely low interest rate. And so it just really helps bolster the appreciation that's going to be held in, in the irrevocable trust going forward. And so now by kind of re reducing all of that, get, getting rid of that benefit and triggering capital gains on that sale, it's really getting rid of all those benefits. Where now it's, like you were saying, if you you were thinking about whether to do an installment sale or to do a gift, it might be better to do the gift based on the circumstances if it's going to trigger a capital gains event. Yeah, and certainly for anybody contemplating, well, what do you do between now and the day that this thing is enacted, which is difficult to predict because you don't know when it's going to be enacted, but um, uh, you would you would need to do the transaction before the enactment date. So if you wanted to do one of these sale transactions, you need to do the transaction before the enactment date happens, because once the enactment date happens, then this new rule would kick in. But everything that happens 
before the enactment date, at least under this proposal, would be grandfathered in, and it wouldn't be subject to this new rule. You'd be able to use the old rule, which was the super favorable rule. Yeah, and I believe the House has set its hopeful deadline for the Senate on September 27th. Mm -hmm. I've heard several senators say that is a completely unrealistic expectation. And so getting it <laughs> getting it done in that timeline is not going to be feasible. So who knows? But that just really goes to the heart of it is that they are hoping to get this done as fast as possible. They really want this bill done. If it's not getting done by the end of the month, I could see it getting done in October if it's going if it's going to be passed again at all. Um, but the House does have a sense of urgency with it. And there's been a lot of discussion that the House is willing to wait on passing the infrastructure bill that the Senate has just passed in order to get this resolution passed. And so there is that negotiation up in there that we finally have this bipartisan infrastructure bill. We're so happy, but now it might get held up because the House really wants to get this proposal passed. So it just mm -hmm. goes to the sense of urgency that if you do need to act, you do need to act as soon as possible. Yeah, it's really a clarion call for uh, anybody who needs it to to do something before this is enacted because of the risk of not knowing when it's going to be enacted. It really makes the planning difficult. The other side of that coin is that it's really hard to do a lot of these large transactions overnight. Like It takes it takes time because most people who have the kind of wealth that would be required to even contemplate this have very complicated assets that can't just be transferred willy-nilly or, you know, uh, at the drop of a hat. It takes a lot of time and effort to make these transfers happen. The other proposal uh, semi-related to this has to do with transfers of entities so basically family entities, so family-owned entities, non-publicly traded entities that have inside of them non-business assets, okay? So under the current rules, it is permissible under the right circumstances to transfer, say, one-third of an LLC or partnership that owns non-active business assets and to take a valuation discount on the one-third that you just gave away. Valuation discount being that for purposes of figuring out how much of your gift tax exemption, for example, you're using on that gift, you don't value the gift as one third of the underlying assets of the entity. You value it as one third of the underlying the value of the underlying assets minus some discount. And sometimes the discounts rates are as high as like 40 percent. So you're only transferring in the eyes of the gift tax and using up your gift tax exemption, say 60% of the value of the thing that you actually are, are giving away. Those sorts of discounts are going to go away. Uh, one of the proposals is that any transfer of that nature of an entity that owns non-business assets and sort of the, the ins and outs and the definitions of what that is is a little bit beyond the scope of what we're talking about tonight. But just It's a little complicated, but just know that as a general proposition, it's things like cash and marketable securities and notes and things like that, um, that aren't held in a trader business, that in that instance, if I transferred, say, the one third in a partnership to Rachel, I would be treated as if I transferred one third of the underlying assets of the partnership, not I don't get to take this valuation discount for the one third of the partner partnership that I gave to her. So effectively, the discount goes away 
and I'm going to have to use up more of my gift tax exemption than I was anticipating. In the end, it may not necessarily mean that I wouldn't make the gift to Rachel because it can still be good estate and gift tax planning to just make the gift anyways so that all the future appreciation sits in her hands and not mine. But it will be, quote unquote, more expensive to do that because I'm going to be using up more of my gift tax exemption. I'll blow through my gift tax exemption, especially when it's $5 million again, faster than if I could take these discounts. Yeah, I think this is a big one that's going to affect a lot of clients and a lot of into families that have family limited partnerships. Like you said, those closely held businesses. You have a lot of families that have a family limited partnership. And like you said, it, it's broken up where they can gift that say one third of that partnership interest to their children. And it's not like you said, the one third that they're gifting away. It's one third plus, you know, we've got all this or all, all one third minus and all these, all these discounts for um, say lack of marketability, lack of control right now, you, you don't have a hundred percent interest. So it's really not actually worth what it really is. If you can't actually control the entire company, things like that. Those are the discounts that when you get an appraisal done on a, a business, the appraisers and the, the CPAs are really going to go through there and really try and see what it actually is worth at the end of the day. And so you get, like you said, kind of more, more bang for your buck when you're gifting away part of that asset. This getting rid of it, like you said, it's, it's not the end of the world. I think this is still going to happen regardless, You're still going to, like for, for other planning purposes, but it does make it, like you said, more, more expensive to make these gifts. You're actually going, you're not getting the, the, the big bang for your buck anymore with all of these discounts anymore. Yep. And there, there will still be some ways to get discounts, so to speak, on the transfer of assets. It just won't be those kinds of discounts. And it will make it a little bit harder to uh, transition wealth from the hands of one very wealthy person to family members uh, and maximize the amount of wealth that you can shift over to the family members without potentially triggering a gift tax. So it's a uh, it's a very complicated set of transactions. Uh, that's a very general expre- uh, explanation of it. So I, I want to make that really clear for anybody who's hearing this, that what we're describing is a lot more complicated in the little nuances of how it's done and the rules that already apply, even absent this change. Uh, already apply and make it uh, a challenging transaction to pull off. But on its face, that's the effect of this. And again, this provision, like the provision about um, grant or trust, would would become effective on the date of enactment. So if somebody wants to get these kinds of discounts on a transfer of assets, they need to transfer those assets before the date of enactment, whenever that is. AKA, get going on that. Start AKA, talking to your advisors yeah. and your attorneys. AKA, yeah, move quickly, uh, if at all. So it's really, uh, it's really interesting. I heard or or read somebody suggesting that because of the, say, those grant or trust rules, that the the use of, say, grats, for example, is going to go away. I don't know if that is 100% true, um, because what the rule says currently is that if the trust is quote unquote includable in the gross estate of the owner of that grantor trust, then this this rule doesn't apply. Well, in the case of a grant, that that is the case. You set up the grant, the grantor is the deemed owner of the assets inside the grant, which is just a trust. For anybody who doesn't know, a grantor retained annuity trust. 
Um, and if the grantor dies during the term of the trust, all the assets in the trust get pulled into the grantor's estate. Um, so whether what the rule means is once the the grat term is done, so say the grat is set up to last for five years, and then after that, the balance of the trust gets paid off to somebody else, that that's the moment when this rule would kick in? I don't know. Uh, it's not clearly stated on the face of the proposal, but it's also not clearly stated on the face of the proposal that this blows up grats entirely. One of the things on the list of things that they were proposing to do that isn't in this proposal is is actually to clamp down on grats in certain ways, and those those changes aren't here. So I'm, I'm suspecting that unless we get those changes from somewhere else, that grats are still going to continue living on, uh, and they're still going to be a viable tool, absent something that I'm not understanding or seeing because this just came out this morning. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that one. I think, you know, grats are are heavily used. It's a very common planning technique. And I, I don't see anything in here that would make that would suggest that they're really trying to clamp down on that. I think really what these provisions on the grantor trust rules are really hitting hard on are your Idgits, your intentionally defective grantor trusts, and your SLATs, your spousal limited, spousal lifetime access trusts, um, to get the acronyms going tonight. Um, those are really the trusts that are really, I, th I think, are going to be affected. Yep, uh, I think so. And it remains to be seen what exactly is enacted. But once they're enacted, then if these are the, the rules that come into play, then, you know, we may have to have a broader conversation uh, maybe at another time about whether you can even do those kinds of trusts going forward, if you were going to do them, how you would do them going forward, uh, you know, because there could be some, I could imagine some ways that they they might, still might make sense. But I think it's just going to be more limited type planning and the planning structure is going to change to adapt to these rules, which is what always happens. And I feel empathy for the people who try to write legislation in these committees, because as soon as it's enacted into law, somebody is thinking about how to get around it already. Yeah. And sometimes with proposals like this, even before it's enacted into law, somebody is thinking about how to get around it. Yep, exactly. The Congress with, with this proposal is definitely trying to get rid of several loopholes, but um, I'm sure they're opening up a few more and there's there's just gonna be more that are that are found once the actual legislation comes out. You mean planning opportunities, right, Rachel? That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Yes, they're not loopholes. They're, yes, planning opportunities. I love that. It just depends on how you message it, see? Yeah, there see, you go. It's one, one person's loopholes, another person's planning opportunity. There you go. <laughs> I love it. One thing, too, I, I just want to point out mm -hmm. that I think was a big thing with this uh, proposal that's how you're saying not in the proposal is right now eliminating the step up in basis. That one was a big one uh, that we've talked about before, where uh, Congress was proposing to eliminate the uh, valuation step up that you get upon an individual's death. So, for example, in, in Arizona, being a community property state, when you have, say, you have a house its original basis value was 100,000. Now it's worth $200,000 today because look at home prices, they're crazy right now. Now it's worth $200,000 and that's when you passed away, it automatically gets that step up in basis. There's no, um, there, you don't have to be worried about paying all that capital gains and all that. 
That is how the current law is right now. You get that step up in basis. Congress was proposing uh, original, or some senators were proposing to get rid of that completely. And that was a big one for me because that affects everybody. It's not just wealthy families and individuals who are getting hit hard by it. It's everybody. That is currently not in the proposal. I've heard a lot of senators bring it back up, though, as that's going to be something they're going to negotiate over because it is a big revenue generator. So whether or not that does get popped up in, in the negotiations, we'll see. But it's not in the current proposal today. Yeah, that's a really good point there. And there's a handful of those kinds of big ticket items that have been batted around and kicked around, so to speak, previous to this that aren't in this proposal. They may be coming out of other committees where they're being negotiated based on revenue needs for projects that people are wanting to fund. And so, yeah, it remains to be seen whether that's going to be included. Uh, but if this is the final, final proposal, the answer is no. But of course, it's only a proposal, not the law. So we'll see what the law actually says at the end of the day. But yeah, that would be a big change as well. I think um, there's a there's a significant amount of disbelief that that could ever be the rule. Again, I should say again, because it, it was the rule in the past a couple of times that we didn't have this quote unquote stepped up basis. Uh, but the fact that they've talked about it so seriously and that they're negotiating big, big dollars in money that people want to spend on things, I would suggest that it is definitely not off the, off the, the table at this point. It's still a possibility because nobody has come out and said it's not a possibility. And I just got to think that somewhere in the many trillions of dollars that they're trying to spend, uh, somebody would be willing to throw this into the mix to try to do it. Yep, 100%. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. All right. We'll, we'll leave it there. Again, that is uh, a teeny tiny little piece of the 881 pages of this proposal. So please nobody think that what we just did was cover everything that is in the 881 pages, which we very much did not, nor did we even cover this little bit. In, in all of its fine and granular details. So this is really meant as a summary, but hopefully that's helpful. People can get a, a feel for some of the proposals that look like they're seriously contemplating and, and very realistically could become the law in short order here, if if not before the end of the year, by the end of the year. Absolutely, yeah. Like Like we said before, if any of these big ticket items have any impact, then now's the time to start the discussions because we really don't know when this law could be enacted. And so really the, the time to act and the time to really seriously consider whether or not you need to do some planning opportunities, take advantage of those, um, is today. Pretty much, pretty much. If you think there's still time, the time is now. So, all right, well, I did, oh, I did want to add, by the way, before we sign off here, uh, Rachel, that we really appreciate everybody who actually listens to the podcast. And I'm surprised still when I talk to somebody who I don't know and they tell me that they listen to the podcast or even have listened to the podcast. So uh, thank you to everybody who's been doing that, who's been listening uh, and kind of going along this little journey with us. It's it's fun. We're going to keep doing it. This is not I'm not trying to lead into it. And this is the end of the podcast. It is not. Uh, we're going to keep doing it, uh, hopefully at least once a week like we've been doing. Uh, but I just wanted to say that, that I very much appreciate that people are even taking any amount of time to listen to any amount of us talking about these topics. 
Absolutely. That that's a really good point to bring up. We we put in a lot of time and effort into this. It's fun, right? We like to do it. We just like to chit chat with with each other with with fun guests. And we're trying to get good information out there to people mm -hmm. that we think really could help them in their profession or to, you know, potential clients out there. Just get information out that you may not have had otherwise. Yep, precisely. Well, Rachel, as always, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been fun. Hey, listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.